Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. And if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn or tap your way to Psalm 56. Psalm 56, if you have a paper Bible, and I don't know, maybe one of you does, let it just sort of flip open halfway and you're probably in the Psalms. Then just use the numbers to get to Psalm 56, where uh, we're going to be going through Kind of as much of this psalm as we can get through in one week, we're going to transition now into summer in the psalms. And again, you know, you look at your calendar, summer started a minute ago, <laughs> but First Peter was too good. We didn't want to cut it off, and now, I don't know, we do whatever we want. Now we're in summer in the psalms, and we're going to use each week to go over a psalm. It's a way for us to kind of segment the weeks. You don't have to be here for the whole series to get something out of it, and yet, it's also a way for us to underline and value the Psalms. I don't know what your experience is with them. I don't know how often you think about them, but I'm going to try today to give you a practical reason to love them. And then I'm going to let themselves just kind of commend themselves to you with their beauty. The reason that we're going through Psalm 56 today is because there is something we kind of had to glaze over in 1 Peter chapter 5 as we were finishing that series that you shouldn't glaze over. It's really, really good. It's really necessary. As we uh, sort of as a culture step into this moment that's very focused on mental health, it's very focused on what was it like when you had to be alone for a year and then you got to be back together with everybody. And I don't know, it seems like culturally people are opening up more about emotional troubles that they deal with. The stats on things like depression and anxiety are going up, not down. How do we as believers, how does the church understand things like what Peter says about anxiety? At the end of Peter 5, it says, or at the end of Peter, in Peter 5, it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now that's a neat sentence. And yet, I don't know. You tell me. If you're somebody who's a Christian and been a Christian for a while, have you figured that out? Are you quick to realize that you're feeling anxious and then do you just bloop, just cast it? Is it as easy as that? Is it a will issue? Do you just decide? Is it a button you push? Or a switch, like a garbage disposal. You just shove the anxiety down that part of the sink and then cha-cha! And it just, it's gone! Woohoo! And you feel so great afterward. I don't think fear works that way. What are you afraid of? This whole talk, this whole sermon is going to go way better for you if you've got something that's personal, something that's specific. What are you afraid of? I read a quote this week that was, a, it was talking about fear of flying, but it was talking about fear more generally. And I thought it was kind of helpful because I have just been in conversations with a good new friend who's uh, very afraid of flying and she has to fly soon. It's Madison, this girl that plays guitar. (laughs) You can go talk to her afterward. Uh, Several people at Hope Church are pilots for some reason, so you can go and confront her with statistics about why she shouldn't be afraid of flying. But she is. She's nervous about flying. And I read this quote and I thought it was helpful because it gives you a minute to think about again how fear works. It's in this book called Running Scared by a guy named Ed Welch, who we quote a lot because I'm hoping that you'll start reading his books. He's very, very helpful. 
But he, he talks about a person who's afraid of flying and is telling themselves, sort of like a mantra, I've flown many times before and nothing has happened. It's the safest way to travel. You may tell yourself that, and this may help, but it rests on the premise that fear submits to logic, which is a dubious assumption. He's right. I don't know when the last time you were like viscerally, bodily afraid of something that you just told yourself what's true and it was like, oh, never mind. We're good. Let's keep going. Yeah, I'm fine. Is that how it works? Is that how a human works? When you think about your children having nightmares and they come in and they tell you, because that's the first thing you ask, oh, sorry, what was your dream? Why are you so scared? What was your nightmare? And they tell it to you and you go, it's okay. Listen, that will never happen. Does that ever work? They tell you their dream, and you're like, oh, good. Okay, well, you don't have to worry. There will never be a tiger inside our house. That's never going to happen. But when you say that, they don't immediately just then check that off because that's not how a person works. That's not how fear works. We need something that can go deeper. That truth does work eventually, but but you need it to, to hit and hit hard. You need it to go into your brain and then go down deeper. And I think I I want you to start to see how the Bible gives you way more than just sort of a platitude, just sort of some words to throw at it. The Bible goes all the way down. It doesn't just hit you in the ears or in the brain. It goes deeper. It gives you something that's unique in that. You can remember it and remember it and remember it and remember it. And each time you'll get the experience of feeling what is both old and new. It talks about in the New Testament, scribes that bring out treasures old and new. I think as you read through scripture, you find something that is both old and new. And here's what I mean by that. You can read a psalm that you've read before. Psalm 23 is one that I think of. And as you read it, the words are very familiar, they're very staid, they're very comforting, and as you read them in this new situation, they're very arresting, they're very surprising. You need both. The Bible gives you both. An author recently that I read was talking about spring as something that is both new and old. Every year when it comes and the world bursts back into life, it feels so new. It feels so surprising. And yet, has there ever been a year in existence when there wasn't a spring? It's something that's old and familiar, a pattern that you're used to. And yet, it's something that is new and surprising and hits you right where you need to be hit. God's Word is exactly more than that way. And, and you need the Psalms because I think the Psalms have a couple of unique angles on making this happen. One, the Psalms use a lot of imagery. Psalm 23, 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. It doesn't just say Yahweh is faithful. He says it, but he says it using imagery, imagery that can start to invade your life. You can think that every time you sit down at a table to eat. The image that's in front of your eyes, the experience of putting that in your mouth, is enacting what you know to be true from this image in the psalm. Every time you get in the shower in the morning and you put that soap on your head and you anoint yourself, that's not the fullness of what anointing is. It's not less than that. 
I try to remember it every time I put my head and shoulders on my head every morning. You take a moment, that image, it starts to, the smell of it, it starts to go deeper than just your thoughts. There's beauty in the psalm. Psalm 1611 is my favorite verse, and I think it's the most beautiful sentence I've ever heard. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The Psalms have emotion. I think you can think of Scripture as something that's wooden, like reading a dictionary. Because the last time you read it, you were a little kid and you didn't understand a lot of the words. No. No. This has emotion. Psalm 22, 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? The Psalms have wisdom. It's not all airy-fairy poetic. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children. Wisdom. He must increase, I must decrease. Fear the Lord, beginning of wisdom. It's all here. So you hammer these things down through your head, down into your heart. In Psalm 56, when we talk about anxiety, it does this really well. It says in Psalm 56, verse 3, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. If you've ever heard that before, you probably thought, well, how quaint. Seems like the kind of thing that would be cross-stitched on a small, white, frilly kind of pillow on old lady houses' couches. You're not allowed to sit on that couch. You know that because they've got the fancy pillows with the cross-stitch on them that say something like, oh, so it seems quaint. But the Psalms don't exist in a vacuum. They come from people who are in situations. This Psalm comes from King David, who is in captivity. He was held by the Philistines. That name may not mean anything to you, but the Philistines were not people you wanted to be in captivity toward. If you read the the Bible and you get to these laws in Leviticus that seem drastic, like, did you have to outlaw that? Was that something they thought might be okay to do? The reason that they outlawed that was because Israel was about to go into Cana, and the Canaanites, the Philistines being one of those groups, were people who did these things. And God was saying, listen, there's going to be a point where this is going to seem normal. It's still not, though. (laughs) The Philistines were a brutal people. And David, he is saying this, I'm afraid I put my trust in you while in captivity to the Philistines. This isn't something just for a pillow. I don't want to say it's less than that. It can be on a pillow. I don't know. Cross this, whatever you want. But I think these words more, more suit etching in the back of a shield so that while you're in war, you can remember. He's held captive by Philistines and he says about them, verses 1 and 2, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long and an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample me all day long for many attack me proudly. They're not getting away with it at night. They're bragging about it in the day. 
And they do this all day long. What's your anxiety coming from? Is it this loud? Is it this specific, personified? Even if it's less so, the medicine that's here fits. What are you afraid of? Is it a fear of abandonment? This idea of of getting too close to somebody and there may be betrayal. The idea, the fear of death, of love. Is it just death? Are you afraid of the ending? You see the sort of smell of it coming into your life as your health starts to slowly deteriorate. Is it a fear of failure? Do you walk around with a great fear of being exposed, of being humiliated? Is it a fear of just going without, that the money's going to run out, that the situation's going to end, that you're going to have to scramble again, you're going to have to fight again? Each of these fears and many more are addressed by the Bible. The Bible doesn't glaze, it doesn't wallpaper over these things. It addresses them specifically. But, but in this passage, I think what he does is maybe something more general. He talks about something more, if you can deal with God's grace towards you in the midst of a captivity with somebody trampling on you all day long, then maybe that same medicine will work for everything else. I, I think you can start to tell yourself that, that some of these things aren't true. Maybe, and there's lots of young people here, maybe you're kind of young enough to not think that a lot of these fears are going to happen to you. Uh, in a novel recently, I read the sentence, um, it was a description of a young man, he said, the man was still young enough to be incredulous of misery. I thought that was really helpful. Because age, you start to know better. That if something has happened, it can happen again. If something has happened to somebody else, it could happen to you. There are fears that I think are legitimate. And the Bible helps you to clarify those, to bring them before you. And if for some reason you don't have something specific, Peter in Peter 5 names a fear. Something that you could be anxious about and need to cast it on him. Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Charles Spurgeon, as a preacher from a century or two ago, said, The ogres of nursery tales exist in reality in the enemies of the church who would crush the bones of the godly and make a mouthful of them if they could. Thanks for coming to Hope Church today. <laughs> ah, I hope you're so encouraged. No, I mean, this is, this is horrifying. But you need to open your eyes to something that's horrifying, if it's true. And I hope you're starting to guess that no matter how crazy this stuff is, the medicine that's coming is far greater. See, when, when Jesus, uh, when, when God speaks to us through David in these Psalms, he, he does make this big. He talks about all day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. Lurking, waiting, plotting, timing. So what do we do about all this fear? Well, we trust in a God who is bigger 
than the ogres. This is what David does. This is the movement of the psalm. In verse 4 he says, In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? There's your big answer. Let your fears be as big as the horrible situation. If they're not, let me tell you about some new horrible situations you didn't know about so that that fear can really get to what is appropriate for this worldview. And then let me balance the whole equation by helping you to remember that these things that are against you are real. But so is God. David doesn't make the Philistines small. He sees them as smaller because his vision is filled. His horizon erupts with the person of a much bigger God. He's saying, God's bigger. I, know, I don't need to fear them. Infrequently, but I don't know, maybe annually. I have this moment where I worry about like attack from foreign nations. Not like Canada, you know. They're the only ones like super close, Canada, Mexico, I don't know. But you, you hear this stuff about these other countries and you think like rocket missiles or satellites or whatnot. I mean, who knows? I don't know that Salt Lake is where they would start the attack, but maybe, you know, like you just start getting fearful about North Korea or whatever. And when I do that, like I said, infrequent, I'll Google. And what I Google to make myself feel better is the budgets. What do nations spend on their militaries? And the number two person is China. And China spends, uh, spent last year $293 billion, the equivalent of $293 billion in their defense slash military. A lot. America spent $801 billion on it. Now, I'm not a numbers guy. My brain is not one where numbers make much of an impression. I just sort of nod until the conversation goes back to things I can comprehend. But even I understand that 800 is more than 293 by a wide margin. So I say to myself, they that are for me are greater by this amount than those who might be against me. That's the same logic, that's the same math that this psalm is starting to give us. It's saying that he who is for you is greater than he who is against you. It's so much greater than just math with God, though. I don't think you understand what Christianity teaches about God as creator. He's not just a good force, as though he's a very powerful uh, ally. He's a person in in the total of creation. The Bible says that God is the creator who exists outside of creation. In the New Testament, Paul, who's preaching in Athens, tells the Greeks, and he quotes a Greek to do it. He says, in him we live and move and have our being. Now, that's a little bit philosophical, but what he's saying is, you can't attack God with anything other than what God has given you and takes back whenever he chooses. In him you live, move, and have your being. The enemies of God need God's air, God's life, God's gravity, God's brain that he's letting them use to attack him. When I was a kid, our pastor used this illustration. And I don't know, maybe you don't find it helpful. It's stuck with me for decades, so who knows. 
But the concept is that man, in our continual sort of push for innovation, got to a point where we felt totally self-sufficient. And part of how we express that is that these men come up to God and they say to God, we no longer need you. Our technology has progressed to the point that we can take dirt and from it create human life. And we propose to show this to you and then, you know, beat you. You, you will no longer be necessary. And God says to these people, okay, but get your own dirt. I'm glad you reacted. Again, to me, the premise of that illustration is very, like, odd. And these scientists who don't need God, but they can somehow, like, talk to him. And, uh, but you just have to go with it. The point being, you need his stuff to argue against him. To fight against God is the cartoon where you're sitting on a branch and then you're chopping that, you're sawing that branch you're sitting on. To cut yourself off from him is to cut yourself off from life, from existence. So if he is for you, who can be against you? I think, though, that a place where, where that statement lands... There's, there's sort of a hole in it where anxiety comes back for a lot of us. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? Amen. But that's a big if. Is God for me? If what the Bible says is true about God and His holiness and what His law looks like. I have no reason to believe that He would be for me. I think any impartial judge would say that he should be against me. I do break his law. I do live without regard for him. Why would I be so confident that he is for me? Well, David seems to be in the psalm. He says in verses 8 and 9, you have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. So he's saying he knows that God is for him. And he knows it so surely that in verse 8, he is sure that God has his eyes on David with so much love and concern that he's tallying the individual tossings that David's going through. That he is measuring David's suffering tear by tear, keeping them in his bottle. David has an overwhelming confidence in a love from God, a support from God that is unmatched by any other relationship he has. His dearest wife does not count his tossings or his tears in a bottle. How is David so sure? If you go down to the end of the psalm, he says in verse 12, I must perform my vows to you, O God. Now, for many of us, we go, oh, okay, well, there it is. He's sure that God loves him. He's sure that God is for him because he's obedient to God. He makes vows and then he follows through. He is somehow one of these perfect people. He has great integrity. So, of course, God is going to support him. But that's not what he's talking about. If that was true, then we would still be miserable. We would still be food for our enemies because no, God is not going to be for us. He should be against us because we sinned against him. 
But David isn't talking about that. He says he will perform his vows. He will render his thank offerings to you. When you go through reading the Old Testament descriptions of the offerings that were given by the people of Israel, it can be difficult to keep attention going. You know, you're probably doing it in the morning. It's probably part of a reading plan because why else are you in Leviticus? And as you're reading through these things, you can kind of sort of put them all together and glaze over a little bit. And you're not really sure what's happening, but okay, there's what I'm supposed to do if I do that, you know, and you kind of keep reading. But not all of these offerings are atonement offerings. In a way, they're all trying to make up. They're all trying to give back. But, but there are some that are specifically thank offerings. They're offerings of gratitude, not, not offerings of justice. In verse 13, he says, you have delivered my soul from death. Past tense. Yes, my feet from failing, that I may walk before God in the light of life. He's confident. He's confident. How? Well, we could get into the minutia of David's life and his confidence in God. But we don't have a lot of time left, and we don't really have to. We know from all of Scripture that we can pick all kinds of different places to see God's love and His faithfulness towards us. You sang about many of them today. But looking across all of Scripture, the big headline moment of how you know that God is with you, not against you, is, of course, Jesus. That God looked at your problem. Imagine yourself and your fears the way David is, is physically in this moment, where he's in a pit with enemies all around him. He's been captured. He's imprisoned with enemies all around him. Your situation is that. You've sinned against a holy God. That means you cut yourself off from life. You're in that pit. And you have enemies all around you. What God did through Christ was not just to kill the enemies and pull you up out of the pit. That would be great, but that's not really what he did. A better understanding of what he did is that he stepped down into the pit with you. The lion that's circling that pit, instead of just killing the thing, he allowed it to eat him. And then he burst through it. The Bible says that when Jesus came and lived, he lived a perfect life. And then when he died, he died a sinner's death. If all he had done is take out our enemies, then justice would still be a question. We would still owe God for what we've done to break his law. What Jesus did instead was take that death. He doesn't just kill the lion. He steps down into the pit, allows himself to be eaten by the lion, and then bursts through death, breaking it in the resurrection. So that now, as you and I trust in Jesus, we put ourselves under him. We don't go to God and say, hey, here's my ledger. I think actually I can make a pretty good case that I'm perfect. No, of course not. You can't. You're not. You go to God and you stand under Christ and you say, okay, Lord, please, because of what Jesus has done, will you please forgive me and accept me? If that's the case, then because he was eaten, you don't have to be. Because in his death as a perfect one, he split death wide open, you can move through it into life. 
That's the truth of the gospel. And if you understand it, if you know it, then it gives you not only eternal life, which is the headline, but it also gives you access to the only resource you really need to argue against the anxiety and the fear in your life. What God's saying through Christ is that you're not alone. Go back to the illustration about my kids with the nightmares. You know, they come in, they tell me something crazy, and I had just tell them, nobody's going to steal you, you know. The windows are shut tight. You're on the second floor. I don't know. Nobody's gonna, that will never happen again. Maybe those words help. Can I tell you what actually helps? A hug. What actually helps is when I take my arms and I put them around my kid. What actually helps is probably dad's like nighttime smell, <laughs> which is probably not great. You know, it's hot in our top of our house and I don't know, it's probably not great, but it's me. And when I bring them into that hug and they hear me trying to like mumble out things that I think will make them feel better while I'm still half asleep, they are, they're just in that moment again with dad. They're feeling the strong arms of one who loves them and can take care of them. Listen, there's all kinds of things we can do to argue against your fears. But what you need more than that is him. You need the strong arms of God himself to put himself around you, to hold you tight. Say, I got this. It's going to be okay. For a little while, if necessary. But I got this. Do you have that? Do you know him? Does he know you? The gospel is that you can have him today. You can receive him now. And of course, if you're somebody who's investigating Christianity, I want that for you. But to the people who are here who are already Christians, and you'll see when we do the Lord's Supper, I think that's many of you. Have you embraced this incredible resource in the gospel? When you are afraid, do you trust in him? We're about to move now into a time of the Lord's Supper. When we take the Lord's Supper, we're not just kind of doing this thing that Christians have always done. It has intense, beautiful meaning because it's showing us again what Christ has done to make a way for us to be forgiven. And we talk every time about how it is something that you're supposed to remember your sin in. We are supposed to take a moment and evaluate ourselves to repent of sin before we come and take these elements. But I don't know that we always celebrate enough. It's also something that's supposed to remind us of the feast that is to come, of the the fact that he has made us clean. And a place that I think puts both of those together really well and is going to help us to see why this Lord's Supper is so important, Revelation 7 says, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? When you step into Revelation, you have the Apostle John who's having these visions. He's being allowed by God through the Holy Spirit to see not just physical things, but like the totality of what's happening. He's seeing what you and I would see if we were watching, but he's also seeing the spiritual realm as it's impacting these different things that are and will be. And so when he's seeing these people, he's not just seeing them in like Eddie Bauer. He's seeing them clothed in white robes. So the elder is saying this. John's like, 
Do you know? I don't know. And then the elder responds, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. That's what we're saying. We're saying he had to die. His blood has to come on me. But in his death, in that sacrifice, I'm made free. How free? Therefore, they're before the throne of God. (laughs) You're with him. You get to serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I think you can understand why this is a supper for people that have put all their faith and all their trust in Jesus alone. If you're still investigating, please do us the courtesy of not coming and taking this. But if that is you, what we're going to do, I'm going to pray and the band's going to sing. And I want you to take a moment to just by yourself with the Lord, repent. Examine yourself. Ask the Lord for forgiveness for some of the stuff that you're hiding from Him, some of the stuff you're keeping away. When you've done that and you're ready, I want you to stand up, come and take some of these elements and then go back and sit down and hang on to them. And they'll stop playing and I'll, I'll lead us to take them together. Let's do that now. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I pray that as we move into this time of self-examination and repentance, that it, would, it wouldn't stay there. Lord, that we would do that and do that faithfully. But Father, that we would see the whole of the gospel, that we don't do some kind of penance when we repent. All we do is admit what we both already know and then again celebrate the forgiveness that's given through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Father, help us to see that and to know it. In being known by you, Father, let us live this life without fear or anxiety. Pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.